So we want to dig into the Word today, and I want to, I want to, um, I want to share a message that's been life-changing for Michelle and I, um, and for many in this room. And it's a, it's a message about bread and seed, the provision of the Lord. The Lord said that He was the bread of life. Bread is for our eating, for our enjoyment, to sustain us right where we're at. It's manna. He provides bread not only for people, but for the sparrows, Mike and Pat, and probably the bird kind too. But He provides bread for all of creation. It says that the birds or the lilies of the field, they neither sow sow nor reap, but God sees fit in it to dress them with splendor and to provide for them sunlight and energy and nutrients. He provides bread for all of creation. But there's something unique about us. We're His kids. And in addition to the bread that He provides for us, He gives us seed. And seed to be sown, to be part of a harvest that He's bringing in. He is the Lord of the harvest. But it's an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to partnership. It's an invitation to us to co-labor with Him in His redemptive plan for the world. So that's where we're going this morning. Bread and seed. Everyone say bread and seed. Bread, bread and seed. seed. You've got some. Bread in, bread in the cupboard, seed in the storehouse. Okay, so just to start off, I want you to put on your parenting hat. Um, you almost can't tell a parenting hat from a chef hat. Do I have any moms in the house? Okay, so uh, put on your parenting hat. That could look like a chef hat or a custodian's hat or maybe a captain's hat, maybe a nurse's hat at times, maybe a top hat, a birthday hat, or sometimes a hazmat helmet. Um, it's, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, just imagine kids of your own. And when we get to this question with your parenting hat on, what do you want most for your kids? What are your hopes and dreams for them? When I look at my son Aaron and my daughter Abigail and my son Joshua, and I look them in the eyes and I I see the joy and the hope for life and sometimes the innocence about the troubles in the world around them, what are my hopes and dreams for them? What are your hopes and dreams for your children? For me, the answer goes something like this. You know, I want them to have relationships. We weren't built to be alone. I want them to have right standing with God and others, to love and be loved, to trust and be trusted with integrity and humility. I want them to be whole. I want them to experience fulfillment from purposeful work. I want them to prosper in what they put their hands to do. I want them to be fruitful. I want them to be safe. 
I want them to be healthy. And I want them to be happy. Not just a fleet, fleeting pleasure, but an enduring joy. I want them to have fun. And I want them to be just possessed with a hope for the future. That the best is always yet to come. So my next question for you is, do you believe this is what God wants for you? Do you really believe deep down in the core of your being that God earnestly desires these same things for you? You know, Jesus said that we as parents, even though we are sometimes tripped up by hurts and wackiness, and he said even evil desires sometimes, right? We know how to give good gifts to our kids. We know how to take care of our own. Then how much more the, our heavenly Father, in all his perfection, how much more does he want to bless you as his child? Jesus said shalom, that's the Hebrew word for peace, but it's more than just an absence of conflict. Shalom, I leave with you. My shalom, my wholeness, my prosperity, not the way the world gives a paycheck, but my prosperity in every lane, in every station, in every place or position, you can experience the wholeness and the prosperity of God. Joseph experienced prosperity in prison. Jesus said, shalom, my shalom I give you. He also said, all the things I've spoken to you, I have spoken them that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He said, I came, the whole reason why he came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full until it overflows. Paul summed up all of what Jesus has said when, in his letter to the Romans, what God is earnestly inviting us into. He said the kingdom of God is not just eating and drinking. It's not just the simple pleasures of this world sometimes the intoxicating and deceptive pleasures of this world. It's not just that, but it's righteousness, right standing in relationships with God and, and other people. Unto peace, shalom, wholeness, prosperity, fruitfulness, safety, health, unto joy, enduring joy, fun, hope for the future in the Holy Spirit. This is the three-legged stool of the kingdom of God. Righteousness unto peace unto joy. They go together, and you can't really have one without the other two. And so we, the reason why I go to this extent to introduce our scripture this morning is because when you talk about prosperity, feathers go up, defenses go up, and I want us to come into agreement first on God's character and His intentions over us. That's our first point of agreement. We must be in agreement that God loves us 
and that he shows that love like we dream over our children, he dreams over us. He dreams over you. You must believe that. If you get nothing else today, just receive that, his love and his goodness over your life. And the other thing before we get to this scripture is I want to just lay out for us, anytime we look into the Bible, there are guardrails that I like to have so that we don't get off and into wackiness. And so the guardrails that I use are, one, godly truths work for everyone on earth. If the principle you're extracting from Scripture only works in San Luis Obispo or a developed economy or the United States, it's probably not God. It might, it might work, but that doesn't mean it's a godly truth. A godly truth works the same for a rice farmer in Cambodia as it does for a king in Saudi Arabia, as it does for a family living on the Central Coast. And the other guardrail on the other side is that the abuse of a truth does not license neglect of that truth. We've all seen many preachers and people probably with good intentions, maybe some not, on TV and elsewhere preach a pay-to-play gospel. You put money in, pull the heavenly, uh, what, is, what do they call it? slot machine, and instant jackpot, 30, 60, 100-fold, right? And it's all about money. I put in my $10, and that's a seed towards a Cadillac. I'm saying the abuse of the truth is not reason for us to never talk about the prosperity of the Lord. It's not license for us to never talk about money in church. Jesus talked about it a lot. My point is not to offend you or really in any way disturb you, but the Holy Spirit may disturb some things in your heart. I hope so, because the, the word of the Lord, the words that Jesus speak always comes to set us free. He never comes to put us in bondage, always to set us free. So with those two guardrails, here's our scripture for today. It's from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. This may seem like a very hard scripture, but as we'll see in a minute, the words of Jesus come to set us free, even the ones even those who come to him with impure motives. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, meaning you don't care about the affirmation. You don't need permission from people to say what you're saying. You're not after their affirmation. You don't regard the authority or the person of men. We know what you say comes from the Lord. Can you sense my sublime, obsequious kind of false flattery in it? That's what they're coming to him with. He says, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, their hypocrisy, and said, 
Why do you test me? You hypocrites. Show me the tax money. So they brought him into denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, and he said to them, render, which just means to pay, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled. Say marveled. We're marveling at the, wor- the way, like his words come to set people free. They are not words of man. They're literally life. Boom. They set us free if we'll just receive them. And they left him and went their way. Nah, they didn't want that. They didn't want to be set free. So let's dig in. The Pharisees came to entangle Jesus, right? Because if he said, yes, pay the taxes, then they would immediately ridiculed him, cast him out, and then had a wedge to drive people away from him because he would in line be endorsing the injustice of the Roman Empire. And if he said, no, don't pay the taxes, they would immediately gone to ridicule him and drive a wedge between the people that were following him and him saying, he's encouraging you to break the law. It was a catch-22. They thought they had him. You never have him. McFly, you never have him. So what does he say? Really? The question is, sorry, I'll get it. The question is, should we pay taxes to our own government? Let me set the stage. Rome was killing Jews, enslaving ethnic groups, deifying their own leaders, instituting corrupt cronyism at every level to economically oppress people, funding wars around the world, propagating idol worship, encouraging temple prostitution, glorifying gladiator violence, aborting unwanted children, and celebrating the debauchery of both bathhouses on every street corner. Many Christians today have similar complaints about our own country, and they use these complaints to justify illegal tax evasion and a sour attitude. The Jews hated the Roman taxes. They were morally disgusted at the oppression and the injustice the taxes supported. They were firmly believing that the only part of their income that was spoken for was supposed to be the tithe. So what did Jesus say? He said, bring me a coin and said, whose face is that? Caesar's. He's not saying that money is evil. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you should avoid money because all money belongs to the state. He's merely pointing out, he said, hey, what country do you live in? What neighborhood are you in? What township? Where where do you live? You can see it because that's the money you have, right? The money that you use to exchange will tell you where you live. Well, he's saying that taxes don't belong to you. They belong to the state, and so therefore you have no direct moral responsibility over their use. They're not yours to complain about. Let me say that again. Taxes don't belong to you, so you have no direct moral responsibility over their use. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. 
or that you shouldn't work to do justice or to make the taxes or the laws in this country more just than they are today. What I'm saying is, is when you look at your pay stub, there's money that is, looks like taxes. That's not yours. So it's not worth complaining about. You don't, that's what Jesus is saying. You have no moral responsibility over it. I'll hold them accountable, but it's not your money. And then he makes a shocking comparison between taxes and tithing. Jesus affirms that in a similar way, the tithe is the Lord's, not in a legalistic way, like a duty. Remember, God's word does not come to bring us into bondage or to take something from you. He is challenging our small-mindedness, and he wants to know how big of a God do you think you serve? If we really believe that the Lord owns the earth and the fullness therein, do you think He's big enough to not only provide enough bread for you to eat and to share, but also enough seed to pay unto Caesar's what Caesar's in taxes and to have some to sow into His kingdom so that we can participate in the harvest of redemption around the world. He's challenging our small-mindedness. And that word could have set the Pharisees free right there. If they would have seen the picture of bigness of the Lord that Jesus was trying to paint and call them into, they could have been set free right there. So the question is, why does God entrust us with something that is not ours? It is an invitation to authentic relationship. Let's compare it to the Garden of Eden for a second, right? Jesus, uh, God said, all of the trees I'm in charge of, but I'm giving you control over it, save one. I'm retaining control of that. But it's there right next to you. He's inviting us into relationship, authentic relationship, where we're aware of our relationship with Him, we're aware of His Lordship in the earth, and we're aware of His goodness. That we don't get so far off in thinking that everything we have is our own. That is a very dangerous place to go. Really, the root issue is lordship. If you are not settled on the lordship of Christ, the seed part of your provision and your relationship to it seems foolish. It seems foolish to pay taxes, and it seems foolish to tithe. The Lord spoke to me, actually, about not looking at my pay stub. I'm not recommending this to you, but for me, it really worked difficulty in my life when I saw the dollar numbers going to the government. It's not because I don't support things that the government does. It's just I look at that and I'm like, what could I do with that? And that really works, right, against you. But I remember him prompting me to say, do you, Jeff, do you think I'm going to take care of you? Yes. 
then just quit looking at your pay stub. There's stuff that's on there that's not yours, but I'm going to bless you anyway. And so I just, I just quit looking at it. I don't know. My wife looks at it. It's her problem. <laughs> so some simple misconceptions. I want to go through four misconceptions about handling our seed and four truths about handling our seed. One is that tithing was part of the law. Tithing actually preceded the law. Can anyone shout out for me the name of the first person recorded in Scripture who tithed? You guys are awesome, and ladies. So uh, the tithe was instituted actually by faith with Abraham, and it was recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 14, and actually uh, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament spent three chapters talking about just Abraham's tithe. I mean, it was a big topic. Um, Abraham, just kind of the, the very short story, is that Abraham was brought into the land of Canaan, right, the place that the Lord, he said, you know, get up out of the mount, mountains of Moriah, not our Moriah, but Moriah, um, and come into the land of Canaan to a land that I will show you. Um, so the people go there, and he eventually makes covenant with other kings and people that are in the land, uh, makes allies, right? If one, if you make war against this person, it's like making war against me. Um, he makes those covenants, and eventually there arose an army, and some people plotted, and they attacked some of the people that he had covenant and allies with. And God gave his small army of 300 supernatural strength to defeat the enemy's attack and to defend his friends whom he had made covenant with, which were in danger. And when he brought back the spoils of that war, he wanted to make sure it was in his heart. He said, let no man say that they made me wealthy except the Lord. And so he tithed. That was the first word. He gave a tenth of all the spoils to one of his friends whom he was defending, Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, and he was also a high priest of the Lord. He is the first person recorded in Scripture to hold the role and the title of king and a priest. Now, a priest is just an intermediary, somebody who people would come to to ask or inquire about the Lord. And in the, um, before the dispensation of the Holy Spirit that, in, that has filled the church as a whole and you individually and me individually, um, oftentimes we would have to rely on prophets and priests to hear what the Lord was saying. Um, that's how it was. Um, and Melchizedek was the first king-priest combo. And Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews makes the comparison that Jesus has become the final king and priest in the order of who? Melchizedek. Jesus was also, is a king, and he was our high priest, our mediator. He went and mediated our relationship with the heavenly Father and atoned for our transgressions and repaved the highway of holiness that we could walk in unto glory. And so the writer of Hebrews says that we should honor Jesus in the way Abraham honored Melchizedek. Abraham and Sarah, our father and mother of faith, yes, I'm being inclusive, so give me grace, um, our father and mother of faith, right, they're our model for how we should relate and so believe God. And Jesus became a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is the king of our kingdom, and he's the priest that mediated our relationship with the heavenly father. And so us, we should honor Jesus as Abraham honored Melchizedek. That was where the tithe started from. Um, 
The next is tithing is not part of the new covenant. So Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that everything in the law was done and, right, we wouldn't have to listen to it anymore. Sort of. That's a very simplistic look. The part of the law that Jesus fulfilled is the part that dealt with our cleanliness and the, literally the outward behaviors that we had to walk in until God could get us to the cross, where Jesus would pay it all and defeat the power of sin and darkness over our life. So let's trace that back. In the Garden of Eden, God came to Adam and Eve, and he wanted relationship. He wanted to walk with them in the cool of the day. No rules, save one. He just wanted relationship. Then that didn't work out. So then he came to Abraham, and he said, I want to make a covenant with you that I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Why? To restore relationship that he had. Over time, that didn't work out. So he came to Moses and he said, hey, I'm going to deliver you out of bondage. I'm going to do all this physical stuff to show you this is what I'm doing in the spirit. And I'm going to give you 10 commandments. If you can get these commandments, these ways of living into your heart, you will be a covenant people so that you can be in relationship with me. So he went from relationship to covenant, to commandments, except Moses couldn't even get down the hill before that didn't work. So then God said, okay, you know, this is not, I am going to give you every detail. This foot goes here. That foot goes there. Your arm goes here. This, because it wasn't getting in our hearts. So we had to go through the motions of the law until we could get to the cross so that we could get a new covenant, so that we could get back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so the new covenant no more does away with tithing than it does with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not part of the law that Jesus did away with. They're commandments that if we have them written in our hearts, will lead us into the life that God wants us to live with Him. And tithing is not part of the law that was done away with. Tithing is how we, how, we, um, how we look at the seed that God has given us to sow. It's an invitation into relationship. It's about honor and lordship and what kind of God do we serve? What are our beliefs about his bigness and his goodness? Another word is tithing is a monetary gift, like we give money. Tithing literally means a tenth, a tenth of your increase. An increase could be rice, it could be squash, it could be whatever you have that God has brought increase to your life. It's not limited to dollars and cents. It's a recognition that all the increase God brings you, all of the trees that he puts into your garden, there's still one that he wants to see what you're going to do with it. Not to test you to put you in bondage, but to test you so that you will stay in right relationship with him and be part of his grander plan of blessing on the earth. The last one is tithing is just the church's way of getting money. I just want to say we preach tithing because we want you to grow in your relationship with God. We want you to experience the peace and the joy of his kingdom, which starts 
with the lordship of Christ in your life. Even God said to test me in this. He knew how hard it would be, how seductive worldliness can be, how deceptive the things of this world can be. But remember, the abuse of a truth is not licensed to neglect that same truth. And so four truths, quickly. One is that tithing reinforces the lordship of Christ in our life. Tithing trains our heart and it renews our mind to the bigness and goodness of God. It reminds us to be grateful about every increase. In every increase, we see the portion that is seed that he's inviting us to sow. Tithing is the seed part of our provision. Tithing keeps us sowing. Why do you sow? Why does a farmer sow seed? To get a harvest. God is giving you seed to sow so you can get a harvest. Part of His harvest. He's building in, in the increase, seed and bread. Seed to sow. Bread to enjoy and to share. The tithe is God's invitation to co-labor with Him in the redemption of the world. It's used to set people aside for the work of the ministry, to help the poor, to feed the hungry, to care for widows and orphans, to bring the good news to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's something that we at Agape, we do as a church. So we, when we, you'll never hear us say we're taking an offering. We always say we receiving a tithe and offering because we recognize that all of your tithes and offerings do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. So we can receive it, and then we pray about where God wants to move it and send it and use it. And then part of that, we also work the same principle, the heavenly universal truth that we take 10% of what comes in and we sow it to other ministries that we're partnered with, uh, you know, in all, not only in San Luis Obispo, but in our region, Um, on this continent and around the globe. And God has always been faithful to bring harvest and promise to this house. I remember when we were building this building and we really needed a certain amount of money really to make it over the line. And the church we had helped plant, Agape Nukuru in Kenya, was also in a building project and they needed a certain amount. And we looked at our building fund and we looked at their building fund And we prayed, you remember praying about this, Pastor Lee, Charmaine, yeah. We prayed, Pat, we prayed, and we gave $40,000 out of what we needed to Agape and Nukuru because we felt the Lord's leading that it was seed. And within six months, we had an abundance over beyond that, and we were able to build and come right here. Tithing means God can trust us with more. You know, it's not always finances. It's not the slot machine. Like Cornelius was a Roman citizen in Acts chapter 10. It says that he was really that um, as he really connected with Christ. And, you know, this was kind of mind-blowing for a lot of the early Hebrews um, who couldn't believe that God was really bringing the good news to Gentiles like us. And so Cornelius gets a hold of the gospel, he receives Christ, and he starts not only tithing, but it says giving exceedingly generous alms to the poor. And so how does God respond? 
God's, God speaks to somebody to go talk to the apostle Peter and tell Peter to go to Cornelius' house and bless him. And Peter says, this is crazy. I can't even walk in his house because he's a Gentile and he's unclean. And then Peter's like, well, if God's sending me here, there must be something I'm missing. So I'm going, remember the principle of the kingdom, before the new covenant, right, if something clean came into contact with something unclean, the clean thing became unclean. But in the new covenant, we bring the cleanliness and power of the Lord and what was unclean becomes clean. And so he goes into Cornelius's house and he gives him a million dollars. No, no, no. Cornelius's whole house receives the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And revival comes to his whole household. Maybe Cornelius didn't need more money, but he needed an encounter with God. You never know what your harvest is going to be, but I guarantee you it will be exactly what you need. And tithing demonstrates our covenant with God to the world. It says the Lord wants to demonstrate his covenant before all the peoples and all the nations that might be envious and jealous, not of you, but that they would be intrigued enough to, to receive and start to take part of it and take notice that God's blessing is across the earth in his people.